Mobley Comics Audio presents 20,000 Leagues into Madness. Created by Brian Del Rio. Based on the works of Jules Verne and H.P. Lovecraft. Chapter 4 The 110 to Calcutta. Starring Brian Del Rio, Surjeet Singh, and Akanksha Mishra. A small crowd has gathered near the fountain at the center of the courtyard, composed of various members of the palace household, servants, handmaidens, aunts and cousins. I stand alone before them, a veritable mountain of suitcases and luggage behind me. They're here to see me off, along with my father, mother, and brother. And of course, the wretched brigadier in his red coat and gold sash, his chest full of metals glittering in the sunlight. The pleased grin on Lachlan Innsmouth's pale visage is a rude contrast with the sorrowful brown faces behind him. I ignore his smug indifference as I search the crowd with my eyes. Where is Samira? She said she would be here to see me off. The gentle lapping of the fountain is dashed by a sudden, <laughs> shrill cry. <laughs> it's mine! You stole it from me! Give it back! It's mine! In a blind rage, Nazib lunges toward me. I cover my face and cower backward, recalling the bruised and bloodied faces of the servants Nazib had savaged during such fits in the recent past. The two sepoys at Innsmouth's side launch into action. Indians employed as soldiers by the company, they wear the red coats of the British Empire. They catch my older brother before he can lay hands on me, his fingers clawing at the air in front of my face. The sepoys struggle to pull him away from me. Father sighs heavily, the feather atop his turban drooping with his face. Gentle, deranged or not, that is still the prince of Bundelkhand you handle. He presses his lips together, glaring sideways at Brigadier Innsmith. Though he is Yuvaraja, no longer. I press my own lips together in a similar expression of discomfort, casting my eyes down in shame. Yuvaraja, Crown Prince, the future Maharaja, a title which belongs to the eldest son by right, to Nazib by right. But much had been tried to cure Nazib of his madness. All had failed, and each time his education in London a stipulation the British had demanded of every crown prince of India had been postponed. And the doctrine of lapse was clear. If father died without an appointed male heir, or one who was manifestly incompetent, the company would inherit control of his lands. The string of tiny pearls on my turban clicked as I repositioned it on my head, its long white feather tickling my knuckles. It is too large. I am not ready for it. The brigadier produces a pocket watch, the gold lid winking in the sunlight as he clicks it open. He frowns. Chop, chop, lads. Get Prince Dukar's luggage to the carriage. Our train leaves in half an hour. A group of servants hustles across the courtyard, snatching suitcases from the mountain of luggage Mother had packed for me. So many cases, brimming with clothes and books and various items of sentiment. It is all too much for me. 
I look at her, standing by father, see the glistening tears in her eyes. It is all too much for me. The servant grunts as he heaves a large suitcase onto his shoulder behind me. Nazib's eyes flash. He screams, lunging toward me once again. The brigadier's sepoys grab him again. Take him to his room, says my father with a heavy sigh. I try to catch my brother's eye as he's being pulled away, but his intense gaze seems focused on something beyond me. His mind had slipped so much in recent months with the charcoal and black paint images of nightmarish creatures and landscapes that covered the walls of his room that father, mother, and I didn't even believe he had a grasp of Maharaja any longer. His sudden, passionate desire to keep the title was startling and made it that much harder to go through with all of this. A lump rises in my throat. I'm sorry, brother. I did not wish to take it from you. I I love you. And just like that, my older brother was gone, escorted back into the palace by the two sepoys. He had been sane once. I knew it childlike to mark time by when I had received gifts, but I vividly remember Nazib's first fits occurring shortly after we had received the books my uncle had sent us. The one by the French marine biologist for me, where I had first learned of Nautiluses, and some boring old term in Arabic for Nazib. I could still remember how clear his eyes had been, how bright his smile, when we'd play in this very courtyard, wooden swords clattering as we pretended to be the demigod Arjuna, or one of the other heroes from Mother's epic tales. But where once there had been the bartering of bare feet, the laughter of playing children, and hopeful dreams for the future, there was now only deafening silence. Silence and dread. My heart ached, knowing it would be at least six years before I saw him again. I am shaken from my ruminations by the gentle squeeze of my shoulder. My father has fallen to his knees in front of me, uncaring of what the flagstone would do to the expensive cloth of his robes. Ungaring that the servants, sepoys, and brigadier see a powerful ruler in such a humble position, kneeling in front of his young son, I look into my father's eyes, now level with mine, see the deep, abiding love in the dark pools of his pupils, the love and the fear. I begin to choke up. It wasn't supposed to be this way, father. I'm happy here, with you, with mother, with... I look over his shoulder again, eyes centering on an empty space in the crowd. My father's bushy moustache curls in a sorrowful smile. What does the Guru say, my son? In this world, when we ask for happiness, pain steps forward. I pull my tear from my eye, throwing my small arms around his neck. (laughs) He holds me close, his beard tickling my smooth cheek. Don't let them change you, Dakar. They will show you many strange wonders, teach you many new thoughts, and tempt your heart from God, from your homeland. The company once upon, they can order this way and that. He drew back, placing both hands on my small shoulders. But our people will need a strong leader. He signals my mother, 
who softly weeps as she brings forward the long curved sword in its ornate scabbard. The flourishes of inlaid gold and gems of green and red glitter as father gently places its silver chain across my small shoulder. The sword is heavy at my side. I dug at the chain. It's too big for me. A tear spills down mother's cheek as she laughs. She falls to her knees by father. They wrap their arms around me, holding me close. You'll grow into it. I know you will. The sepoys were quick to hustle my luggage off the carriage and onto the train car. The locomotive engine hisses, blasting clouds of steam across the station platform. Ordinarily, I would have been fascinated by its many gears, pipes and pistons. But today, my last day in Bondelkant, my love of foreign machines was eclipsed by another love altogether. I squeezed the tiny porcelain box, which contains the necklace I had crafted for her set with the pearl from our misadventure the previous week. My eyes desperately search the crowd milling about the station. The station is located in the part of Shanxi known as White Town, a cluster of domiciles and churches known as Danbury Square, with a majority of the British population, composed of company soldiers, workers and engineers, as well as a few Christian missionaries and European naturalists, were concentrated. I have rarely been permitted to explore this section of Shanxi, so the station platform is a menagerie of strange clothing and faces on a scale I had not experienced before. There are a few Indians, mostly servants carrying luggage among the stiff black collars, tall black hats, parasols, unnaturally tiny waists, and enormous swishing skirts of the British going about their business on the station platform. I lick my lips chest heaving with my anxious breath. She could still make it. I search for the colorful sari amid the monochromatic mass of the white folk. The train horn blasts, rattling my bones. All aboard! The 110 for Calcutta leaves in three minutes. No, 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 no. My heart sinks. I jump in surprise at a hand on my shoulder. My smile falters when I see to whom it belongs. Time to go, lad, says the brigadier with an ugly grin. He gently ushers me toward the entrance of my car. You leave India a savage boy, but when you return, you'll be a civilized man. I give the station platform one long, final look, heart aching, willing Samira to appear. With a deep sigh, I turned my car. I mount the metal steps, squeezing past the conductor. His chimney brush of a moustache twitches back and forth in annoyance as he glares down at me from behind a monocle. He slides the door shut with finality behind me. Have a seat, young prince. I trudge to my booth, plopping in my seat as the train begins to move. I loop the chain from the heavy sword over my head and set the weapon on the white cloth of the table. I place my forehead against the hot glass of the window. 
A squeaky wheel heralds the arrival of a trolley from the dining car, pushed by an Indian fellow in a blue uniform with shiny gold buttons. He lifts the silver lid off the tray, revealing a platter of chicken slathered in a yellow curry atop a bed of basmati rice. Despite the enticing smell wafting from the tikka masala, I have no appetite. He claps his hands together and bows to me slightly. A blast from my nostrils fogs the glass in front of my eyes. Above the roof of the station, I can see the bulb-tipped spires of the palace begin to move. I set a hand longingly on the glass, my fingertips tracing lines in the cloud of fog. Goodbye, Samira. I straighten, my heart racing. There she is, pushing her way through the crowd on the station platform, desperate to reach me, a flare of joyful color in the austere mass of black and white. She is waving furiously, the bracelets on her arms winking in the sunlight. Samira! I launch to my feet, stumbling as the floor shifts with the growing momentum of the train. I catch the steward trolley as I fall, jangling the silverware and knocking a glass of water onto the floor. I hear the mechanical heartbeat of the steam engine thumping faster and faster, seemingly in concert with my own. I scramble toward the back of the car, the baffled conductor lifting a hand to stop me. Train's moving, lad. Take a seat. I shove past him, the monocle popping from his startled face. I race into the next car, desperately trying to stay parallel with Samira on the platform. Samira! The motion of the train throws me from my feet into the lap of a silver-haired British woman with an enormous hat which contained what looked to be a small garden of flowers. Well, I never... She cries, dropping her flute of champagne. I ignore her and the shouting conductor, tearing toward the back of the car. I can still see Samira through the windows, but she's growing smaller. Smaller. I reach the caboose and throw open the door, my small chest slamming into the railing. I wave the box at her, as if she could possibly understand what it was. Samira! Her form grows smaller and smaller as the train carries me away, until the train rounds a grove of trees. And just like that, Samira Bot has gone from my life. It was only for the next six years, but with the way I felt, it might as well have been forever. I squeeze the railing and take a rugged breath. Slumping to my knees as the tears flow at last from my eyes, clutching her gift close to my heart. Goodbye. I turn to re-enter the car, noticing the conductor in the entryway. He could have rushed out and grabbed me, but had decided to keep a respectful distance. He pats me on the back as I step inside, defeatedly slipping Samira's gift into my pocket. Mm, uh, women... You get over all of them eventually, lad. Ale helps. What say we get you back to your seat and I fix you one, hmm? The boy was about my age, dressed all in black, wearing the white, two-tongued collar of a British Christian cleric. Vickers, I believe the British called them. In fact, the boy would have looked exactly like a miniature vicar, if not for the shorts which cut off at his knees, revealing thigh-high white socks. The boy was sitting in my seat, eating my chicken tikka. 
do you eat this stuff? He said, appearing visibly red and sweaty. (coughs) Better than the liver and onion we're having, I suppose. I blink in confusion, slowly approaching my booth. What is your... He lifts a finger before proceeding to guzzle my glass of water, rivulets streaming from the corners of his mouth. (coughs) I'm Thaddeus Higginbottom, but you can call me Thad. What's your name? There is a tickle of memory at that surname. I slide into the seat across from Thaddeus. I am Dakar Dalwar Singh. Higginbottom. Are you? Yes, yes, my father is Bartholomew Higginbottom, the missionary responsible for bringing the good news to Bundlekind. He's on this train too. Caught tuberculosis a few months back. We're going back to England so we can get some proper medical attention. Gentlemen. It's the conductor. He sets a flag and a veil in front of me. We request, as a courtesy to the other passengers, that you keep the windows closed this evening as we pass through the Miristika swamplands. The stench can be quite strong. Thaddeus perks up. Miristika? Is that the one with the fish people in it? The conductor's lips curve in an amused smile. Quite an imagination this one has. A mouth to match, I mutter. With that, the conductor leaves. I'm actually surprised it took Thaddeus this long to notice the sword on the table. He reaches for it excitedly. Wow, is that a real sword? He picks it up and begins sliding it out of its jewel-studded sheath. I snatch it from him, huffing impatiently. Yes, it's real. Don't you have an ill father to be looking after? Thaddeus shrugs. Not really. He's drunken himself into a stupor again. Speaking of which, he points at my flag in a veil. I sigh, waving my consent. Thaddeus lifts the flag into his lips, then coughs and sputters. <coughs> the ale here is so bitter. I roll my eyes and sigh again. This was going to be a long train ride. Leaning over, I grab one of my suitcases. What you looking for? A book to pass the time. Which one? <sighs> Encyclopédie de la Mer by P. Erenax. You speak French? No, but my mother did. She used to read and translate it to me. Anyway, the book has illustrations. A Gentoo woman who could speak French? I didn't know Indian women were so learned. Yes, she's an incredible woman. Every bit a leader as my father. My people look to her as much as my rummaging abruptly ceases as I lay eyes on it. Dakar? What is it? Slowly, I pull the book from my suitcase. The large, dusty tome thumps heavily on the table. Is that your Encyclopédie de la Mer? No. It's a, a book that belonged to my brother, sent to us from our uncle in Arabia. The servants must have packed it by accident. I blinked, suddenly realizing that this was what had caused Nazib's fits before I left. He wasn't screaming because I had taken the title of Maharaja from him. He was screaming because I had unintentionally taken the book central to his obsessions from him. A thin metal crest in the shape of a five-sided star sat at the center of the cover. I run my fingers along the chipped silver letters below it, unable to make out their meaning. I thought you said the book was from Arabia. These letters are in Greek. You read Greek? Thaddeus shrugs. It's kind of a prerequisite for becoming a member of the clergy. Can't study the scripture without knowing Greek and Latin. Well, what does it say? Thaddeus scratches the back of his neck. It's a single word, but I've never seen it before. It's like the word for dead, 
law and image mashed into one. The boy hesitates, licking his lips before he reads the title aloud. Necronomicon. Mobley Comics Audio.